2: Let him know that we know where he lives, we know the way that he goes to his office, and London is a very dark city in the middle of night. I used to feel safe until last year.
3: So
2: that was the first time the police came to you? Yeah, they told me that uh, we received information about immediate and significant life threat. You need to have kind of security protection. They advised me if you can go to another place, safe house, in the beginning of 2022. But after this wave of the protests in Iran, they came again, and police and counter-terrorism, and then they said that, definitely you need to have protection and go to a safe house. But yeah, the level of protection. Yeah, they said that we know that is related to Iran's government.
3: Fences have been put up in response to the threats. They only exist around the building that houses Iran International, three metres high, running around the whole building, this otherwise quite calm and peaceful business park in all places, Chizik. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and this is a story... About how Iran's long arms reach right into the heart of London. While reporting my last series, Londongrad, an investigation into Russian money and networks in London, I began to see the city in a completely different light. It's rich, cosmopolitan, and liberal. Yet it is a battleground. It's a place where Russia launders its rubles, and where its spies deploy military-grade poison against their former colleagues. Defectors like Alexander Litvinenko, who are promised protection by the British crown. I spoke to his son, Anatoly, in the first series of Londongrad.
1: I think until my dad died, everything was really below the radar. As soon as he died, they basically identified Polonium-210, and from that moment it became a huge international incident.
3: But I began to see that the problem isn't just with Russia. For decades, Britain has had a complicated relationship with Iran. The embassy in Tehran has been closed and reopened. Hostages have been taken and released. Nuclear deals have been made and broken. In fact, the problems with Iran go much further back than those with Russia. While Russia began targeting people on British soil in recent years, Iran started straight after its 1979 Islamic revolution. Throughout the 80s, Iranian agents tried to bomb, shoot and stab Iranian dissidents in Britain. Political dissidents who posed a threat to a new and authoritarian state. And then, at the end of the decade, Iran issued its most notorious fatwa to the writer Salman Rushdie, who only discovered about it when he was interviewed on Radio 4's World at
1: One. Will you be looking to the British authorities in any form for any kind of protection as a result of this? I think I must.
3: I think, honestly, I've just heard the news and obviously that is is something I may well have to think about. Yes. I'm very sad that it should have happened. Um, I think that... As I've been saying all along, it's not true that this book is a blasphemy against Islam. Um, I doubt very much that that Khomeini or anybody else in Iran has read the book. Um, it was February 1989, 1989, and it could have been the moment that Britain began to rethink its relationship with Iran, just like Litvinenko's poisoning with polonium in Mayfair in 2006 did for its relationship with Russia. Instead. Counter-terrorism police officers moved Rushdie to a safe house and British ministers pressured him to apologise to the Iranian government, in the hope that Tehran would release a British hostage or stop sending its agents to kill him. Over more than four decades, we can see the same tolerance of malign activity from Iran on British soil, because all along, Britain has held onto the view that Iran can liberalise and become a more stable partner in the Gulf. In the same way that it held on to the hope that Russia would democratize its politics and liberalize its economy. Now that Iran's problems have changed, its targets in Britain have changed. The threat in Britain is no longer from political dissidents, but from Iranian journalists who broadcast in Persian. BBC.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Journalists who are covering the largest protests to rock the Islamic Republic since its inception. Journalists who thought they were safe here. From Tortoise, this is Series 2 of London grad, Iran's hit squads. Attempts on the lives of journalists in Britain isn't a story I thought I'd ever cover. It's a story I know from Malta, my home country, an archipelago in the Mediterranean with one of the most hostile environments for journalism in Europe, and where my mother, Daphne, a journalist, was assassinated five years ago. I came to this story, in fact, after speaking to Keelan Gallagher, KC, a lawyer who handles the international work in my mother's case. Keelan also represents Iranian journalists working in London. When I met her, she told me that the level of threats and harassment her clients face has increased sharply over the past year, that they now receive multiple warnings from counter-terrorism police officers about threats to their lives from the Iranian government. And it occurred to me, that the reason why many of these journalists came to London in the first place, why I settled back here after my mother's death, is at risk. That the city might not be the haven that it once was.
4: I spent more time here in London than I have done anywhere else.
3: Nazanin Ansari left Tehran for London in 1978, Here she is in a bustling Persian restaurant in Vale in North London, and amongst dishes of buttery yellow rice, Nazanin spoke about the relationship between London and Tehran.
4: London, by 2009, I can tell you, was the culture capital of Iran, outside of Iran, by virtue of the number of artists, writers, living here. We are in Little Venice, and facing the pond is a white building. That centre is called the Sufi Centre of London. Then, a few blocks away, we've got the Islamic Centre, Mr Khamenei's representative office. Iranian life has become interwoven into British life as well. We're part of that British life. The area north of here is Edgeware Road. There's a small cafe there overlooking the canal. The man who bought it and turned it into a cafe on that beautiful scenic landmark of Little Venice, he was a pianist at this hotel in Tehran, Hotel Darbant, and that hotel was iconic in the 1950s and 60s because it had live band and orchestras, and people would go and dance, and so when the revolution happened, he came back to London, and in memory of playing piano in Tehran, he built this. There's a lot of Britain in Iran, but also Persians in Britain. And we have been living here, and movement between Iran and London, Tehran and London, there were daily flights. But we have only one problem at the moment, unfortunately. And that's the Islamic Republic of Iran.
3: Iranian officials say that satellite TV channels deviate the society's morality and culture. And that they are anti Islamic. Private ownership of satellite dishes is illegal. Iranian authorities regularly raid neighborhoods to confiscate dishes from rooftops, but people then just go out and buy another dish. Some 70% of Iranians own a satellite dish. They're one of the few ways people can access broadcasts from outside the country. In London, There are three TV channels broadcasting in Persian by satellite, for free. Two are private. One is part of the BBC. The Iranian government has become obsessed with all three organisations, in particular Iran International, which the Iranian government labelled a terrorist organisation over its critical coverage. I visited Iran International in Chiswick in the middle of February to meet its executive editor, Aliasgar Ali Aliasgar Ramazanpur. Ali Ramazanpur received two threat to life warnings from the Met's counterterrorism team, which works with MI5. When Aliasgar and I met again in March, he turned up with a personal security guard. So the last time we met was when I came to Iran International in Chizek on the 15th of February. Um, what's happened since?
2: That Friday, we got warning from uh, Metropolitan Police. It was exactly 4.30pm that I received call from uh, our security saying that we need to stop operation in the building and we need to ask everyone to leave the building. I received many messages from journalists, uh, our team, what's happening, Uh, and the level of concern that they have. They had concerns about their families and about themselves. They were asking me that, are we safe at home? Uh, During the night came an order from Khamenei And they stopped operation of 16 newspaper at one day. More than 200 journalists wake up and they didn't have office to go. It happened in Iran 20 years ago. And uh, when it happened here in London, (laughs) I was thinking, what's happening? What's happening?
3: Ali was put on the clock. He was given two hours to instruct his editorial staff to vacate the office. Iran International began broadcasting from Washington, DC while the Home Office helped it to find a new, more secure location in the UK. Minoto TV is a satellite channel based in Wimbledon, Southwest London. One of its journalists, Potkin Azarmir, also received a visit from the Mets counterterrorism team.
2: Yeah, every last year. The um, counter-terrorist police uh, contacted me. They said, there's nothing to worry about. It's just that, you know, you've come on our radar. We just want to meet up with you. They're talking to a few people who like me. It was just reminding me, like, you know, to change my routine of coming to work, not going to any countries bordering with Iran for holidays.
3: A new broadcasting house, a stone's throw away from Oxford Circus, I meet Rana Rahampur from BBC Persian.
5: And that was the moment that I realised that, OK, this is clearly more serious than I thought. They said, if they're there, they want to hurt me, one way to do is to rearrange children's pickup and kidnap your kids. And they said it's very easy for them, to, for the uh, operatives. Or other things like if you receive posts, you have to double-check before you open any post. Things that you don't even think about.
3: As the lead presenter for BBC Persian TV, Rana developed a big profile in Iran. Her journalism receives a lot of attention. And even as she speaks about the threats she faces for doing her work, it's clear that press freedom is a cause that's close to her heart. What was it like coming from Iran and working as a journalist here?
5: It was a breath of fresh air because before joining the BBC, I worked for a Press TV, which is owned by the Iranian government. And over there, we used to be sent facts from the head of the service, which we had to report. There was no double sourcing, there were no questioning, you just had to report what you were given. Arriving in London as a 25-year-old, I had no idea what I was walking into. And then I realized that actually in a newsroom, we decide what to report. And we just debated amongst ourselves. There's nobody to tell us what to report and what not to report as, as long as we verified whatever story. And we all agreed around the table that it was an important story. We could cover it. And it was so exciting to be able to report what you as a, as a journalist wanted to uh, tell the people about.
3: It's striking to listen to Rana about her initial optimism, how her work changed as she moved from a repressive country to London, like life going from greyscale to colour, and how, as the years passed, it went backwards. The more I talk to Rana about her recent work at BBC Persian, the more I recognize patterns in the way journalists are targeted in countries like my own. The way journalists reporting on government corruption receive death threats.
5: Several hours a day reporting in English and Persian, and every major bulletin in the BBC was covering this story. That seemed to have made the Iranian authorities very uncomfortable.
3: The way certain journalists are targeted.
5: And I think that's one of the reasons that they specifically targeted me because I was a woman and I was working very hard.
3: The way those threats start online.
5: Social media threats, we will kill you, we'll do this, we'll do that.
3: And intensify.
5: In which they said that we will rape you in front of your daughter before we behead you.
3: Until they move from the online world to the real one.
5: So I already had a case and I had an officer who was aware of my circumstance. And um, when I phoned them and I informed them about it, they sent a team. But then because I was on the database, they had already sent me an email saying that the threat level has increased, so we need you to be more vigilant.
3: Where even the journalist's children are targeted. And until their life, not just as a journalist, but in its entirety, has completely changed.
5: And that is the moment I realized, okay, my life in London that I used to think was safe is no longer the same. I no longer go to Iranian events. I don't go to concerts. I don't go to Iranian supermarkets on my own. Because at this stage we have to try to stay safe as much as we can, of course.
2: they summoned some of my relatives in iran summer of 2021 summoned one of my f- a member of my family in iran and they sh- showed him a picture a picture of me here in
3: london it's really difficult to believe it's come to this so Aliaska Ramazanpur, a senior journalist working in London, receiving multiple threat-to-life warnings from the Met in the same year, and the company he works for, Iran International, reaching a point where it's unable to operate in its normal location because of threats from a hostile state. The picture feels even darker when I stop to think about my own situation. While all this is going on, I can work freely as a journalist in London because I'm not Iranian or reporting in Persian.
0: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
3: Hi. Hello. Hi, we're journalists. We work with Tortoise Media, making a a podcast about Iran. Hi. 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 He's coming out of his tent. So it's hunger strike day twenty-seven. Could I first ask you to introduce yourself, actually? Yeah, my name is Vahid uh, Beheshti, human rights activist. Vahid Beheshti, a British Iranian activist has been outside the Foreign Office since the 22nd of February. He wants the government to take a harder stance on Iran, especially given what the country is doing here.
2: What's happening in UK? They come in and asking Iran international TV stations and all journalists to relocate their activities from London to DC. The Metropolitan Police tell them, we cannot guarantee your safety and security anymore here in Britain.
1: Today I'll give our annual public update on the threats the UK is facing and what MI5 with partners is doing about them. No one should be under any illusion about the breadth and variety of the threats we face in 2022.
3: A cold November morning, Thames House, the headquarters Of MI5. The security services chief, Ken McCallum, is standing in front of a podium. He's talking about the threats of Russian and Chinese espionage in Britain, and then, in an unprecedented public statement, calls out Iran.
1: I also want to mention the threat from Iran, the state actor which most frequently crosses into terrorism. The current wave of protests in Iran is asking fundamental questions of the totalitarian regime, This could signal profound change, but the trajectory is uncertain. For now, we see the regime resorting to violence to silence critics. Iran projects threat to the UK directly through its aggressive intelligence services. At its sharpest, this includes ambitions to kidnap or even kill British or UK-based individuals perceived as enemies of the regime. We've seen at least 10 such potential threats since January alone. The UK will not tolerate intimidation or threats to life towards journalists or any individual living in the UK.
3: Ten Iranian plots to kill or kidnap individuals in Britain from January to November last year. November was the month that the British government surrounded Iran International with steel fences, concrete barriers, armed guards and armoured vehicles. This might all sound a bit drastic, but as security sources told me Iran wasn't just after individual journalists at the TV channel. It wanted to eliminate the entire company, and Iran International shared an office block with other companies, including, for example, Singapore Airlines. November was also the month that Ali Asghar Ramazanpur got his second threat to life warning. The police have to provide these warnings when they receive specific intelligence that a threat to a person's life is both credible and imminent. But that may not be enough to make an arrest. Most of the UK's 45 police forces rejected my freedom of information requests for threat to life warning numbers. The few replies I received show that forces typically issue dozens of warnings a year. The Met is an exception. It sends out more than 200 warnings annually. Most warnings are related to domestic crime rather than hostile states. In my reporting, I found they're issued like this. Police officers visit a threatened person's home to warn them, give them security advice and offer to take them to a safe house. They don't reveal the threat's precise nature or the source of their information. They asked the person to formally acknowledge the warning by signing a document. Counterterrorism police officers issue warnings when the threat is from a hostile state. I went to a counter-terrorism briefing at the Met's headquarters, a day before Iran International vacated its Chiswick office. That briefing at Scotland Yard was just extraordinary. The room was full of defence editors and other journalists. We had the head of counter-terrorism policing, Matt Jukes, talking about how the nature of his work has changed, about how counter-terrorism policing has become so much about fighting off threats from what they call hostile states, and less about, say, religious extremists. And increasingly, Majuk said, those threats come from three states in particular Russia and China, which we probably were aware of, but more and more from Iran. And on Iran, he said that counterterrorism police officers working with the security service, so MI5, intercepted five um, assassination or abduction plots since November 2022. So that's five more plots, since the Director General of MI5 said they had stopped 10 plots since January 2022. So 15 plots from January 2022 to the day of this briefing, February 16th, 2023, a rate of more than one assassination or abduction plot per month. But why is Iran doing this now, and why at this rate? There's one event in particular which seems to have provoked the authorities in Tehran. In September last year, Iran's morality police arrested Masa Amini for allegedly not wearing her headscarf properly. She was a young Sunni Kurdish woman, all grounds for discrimination in Iran. She fell into a coma hours after her arrest and died three days later. When the authorities claimed she died of natural causes, protests erupted across Iran.
5: The show began, and I had no idea we were going to have Mahsa's father on the line. Our producer in my ear said that he, we have the father on the line. And the lines were terrible. Um, and obviously he's, he's in um, Kurdistan. And I had no notice. I, had, I was not expecting to speak to um, her father. And then he was on the line and with a coroner's report had been published a few hours earlier in which they claimed that she had a brain surgery in the past and she had episodes of um, seizure and that her death had nothing to do with being beaten up in the custody of the morality police. I asked the father, we, di- we talked a, l- a bit about it and he, he denied it. He said my daughter was very healthy, She even she hardly got any cold... Um, And this is all baseless. And then he said he wasn't even able to see Mahsa's body. Um, And when he begged, he was allowed to see her feet, which were swollen, and her face. And it was obvious that she had um, experienced um, trauma to her head. Um, And then I reached a point and I said, Mr. Armini, what do you think really happened? and the line cut off and the, 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 the producer in my ear said that keep talking keep talking just um give us a roundup of what we had said so far we're trying to get him again can you hear you?
1: give me a thumbs up Lana,
5: that you can have. so i said so as you heard mr amini was saying this and the iranian authorities say this um, and we're trying to get him again, so I was just trying to fill the air. And then my editor said, he's on the line again. And I said, okay, it sounds like we have Mr. Amini on the line again. And Mr. Amini, what do you think really happened? And as he began to say his sentence, the line dropped. They cut him off, and we never managed to get him again.
3: You never heard from him again, after... After Iranian authorities claimed that Masa Amini died of natural causes, people across the country took to the streets in protest. Women began removing or burning their headscarves in solidarity and chanting, "Woman, Life, Freedom and Death to the Dictator. The protesters represent an existential threat to the Islamic theocracy which has ruled Iran since 1979. The Iranian government responds the only way it knows how to, with force. According to the UN, there have since been tens of thousands of arrests, cases of murder and forced disappearances, torture and rape. And the long arm of Iran's intelligence operation has reached deep into the UK, desperate to silence broadcasts of the protests from British soil.
5: So specifically since the protests that started after the death of Mahsa Amini, the threats increased. But since her death and the protests, and specifically my role in the coverage of those protests... So wiretapping was completely new, and it's likely that it happened before, but another scenario is that Iran got the capability more recently to do that because um, they're very close um, to Russia and China, and they're constantly exchanging technologies and and surveillance technologies. Um, So it seems that they are getting better and better at organizing these attacks.
3: They. We know about these attacks. We have a sense of their scale, intensity, and motive. But the one thing we still don't know is perhaps the most important. Who exactly are they? The 15 plots to assassinate or abduct people in Britain are, according to British authorities, from Iran. It's a big number. I asked Matthew Dunn, a former intelligence officer at MI6 who worked on Iran, what he thought about it. It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and clearly your your number of um, escalation from 10 to 15, that is what uh, the DG of MI5 is revealing publicly. To your figure of 10 to 15, um, I would, if anything, suggest that's quite a low number compared to the reality. I, I would suggest that the reason that... Um, this seems as though it's a new thing, it's probably in part to do with a, a tentative step towards a little bit more openness from MI5. And so you're seeing some information coming out that otherwise wouldn't have done previously. But the numbers you're you're giving me do not surprise me at all, and as I say, I think probably they're on the low side. In another briefing just a few weeks after Matt Duke says, I learned the number of plots had already risen above 15. And it's almost certainly still rising. But there's still something missing here. If there are so many plots, then where are the criminal cases? Who are the assassins, the spies, the agents? And why aren't they in court? Who's keeping them secret? Each plotter has a name, face and address. I want to know who they are in the next episode of Iran's Hit Squads.
5: She could see on the Google tracker
0: that he was moving, his location was moving, but not towards Mumbai, where he was supposed to go, but towards Oman, and then crossing the border of Oman, going to the coast, and that's where the tracker stopped.
3: This series is written and reported by me, Paul carona Galizia. It's produced by Joanna Humphreys. The sound design and original theme is by Tom Kinsella. Artwork is by John Hill. The editor is Jasper Corbett. Thanks for listening. New episodes will be released every Tuesday. You can get early access to each episode and add free listening by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts or joining Tortoise as a member where you can access more of our reporting, live events... And support our work for just sixty pounds. Just visit tortoisemedia.com Slash Hit Squads, for this exclusive offer.
2: Tortoise.